This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. Mass coral die-off, melting ice sheets, the Amazon turning into savannah. These are known as tipping points when an ecosystem is pushed to the brink by climate change and a domino effect of disaster results. Tipping points are arguably the scariest thing about climate change. Once they are reached, it is harder to prevent climate events spiralling out of control, even if global warming is kept at bay by keeping a lid on emissions. Tipping points have long worried climate scientists, but recent studies have shown that some tipping points could happen sooner than expected. Some have started already. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent report warned that the planet had passed some crucial tipping points, and this will make adapting to climate change that much harder. Joining me on the podcast today is Professor Benjamin Horton, a climate scientist who is director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore. Professor Horton recently led a COP26 report on managing disaster risks from natural hazards in Southeast Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you, Robin. It's good to hear from you again. Indeed. Great to have you back on the show, um, Ben. I hope you don't mind me calling you Ben. Um, I'll kick off with the first question for you, which is about the climate tipping points that worry you most right now and how close we are to reaching those tipping points. Well, I think uh, tipping points in the climate system have always concerned all scientists because we know that the climate system is not is not what we would say is linear. There aren't going to be small increases in carbon dioxide that cause small changes in temperature and small changes in sea level. What we're going to see is that the system has a series of tipping points where it will very, very abruptly change in a short period of time. So much endeavour within the scientific community is to try and understand these tipping points because they can have incredible sort of like far-reaching effects on our climate. And there are many, many examples that have always concerned climate scientists regarding feedback systems in climate. So we can start off with something that's sort of very simple, which is called um, an iced albedo feedback mechanism. So the Earth's climate is regulated by the amount of incoming solar radiation from the sun that is reflected back out into space. So the Earth's albedo is around 30%. So 30% of our incoming solar radiation is reflected back out of space to space. And that 30% is really key to stop us overheating. The vast majority of that 30% occurs in the northern hemisphere above 66 degrees north in the Arctic Circle, because that's where we have ice. Now, ice reflects over 90% of the incoming solar radiation. And regarding tipping points, what concerns the climate community is that if you warm up the atmosphere, the ice melts and is replaced in the Arctic Circle. The sea ice is replaced by open water. Open water doesn't reflect 90 percent of the incoming solar radiation, it reflects less than 30%. So you've got a huge change in the ability of these high latitude areas in the Northern Hemisphere to reflect incoming solar radiation. So as a community, we're very, very concerned with when is the Arctic ice 
going to disappear because it's a feedback mechanism. You warm the Earth's temperature, you reduce the amount of ice. That warms the Earth's temperature even more, reducing even further amounts of ice. And once you've lost the ice, it's very, very hard to regrow it. So we're concerned in the scientific community in that aspect. And then there are many, many other feedback mechanisms that scientists are concerned about. And keeping us below these thresholds, tipping points, whatever you want to call it, really is the basis of the COP26 uh, talks, which relies upon the Paris Agreement some decade or so earlier to keep our temperatures below two degrees C above pre-industrial temperature. So we think in the climate community that two degrees centigrade is the threshold for feedback mechanisms to cause the climates to be uncertain. So we're talking about keeping temperatures below a two degrees three warming from pre-industrial temperatures in the 1880s. Mm. Now, Ben, you're um, COVID permitting, about to go on a trip to the Arctic. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you expect to find there? Well, you're correct, Robin, that this weekend um, I am flying out uh, to Norway um, together with um, my graduate student and one of my postdocs. We're part of a team that's going for a conference known as the Arctic Frontiers. So Singapore has an observer status on the Arctic Council. So the Arctic Council is made out of countries who have a border in the Arctic Ocean. And um, Singapore has an observer status because it's very concerned with what's happening in the Arctic to do with ice sheet melting in Greenland and having impacts in sea levels here in Singapore. So when I arrived in Singapore about five years or so ago, um, the Singaporean government was always on the lookout for scientists who work in the Arctic. And I've worked in the Arctic for over 15 years, observing how sea levels are rising and how the landscape is changing with climate change, because it's one of the fastest warming areas on the planet. So if we talk about that two degree C threshold, global average temperatures have gone up around one degree C um, since the 1880s. So our global average temperature has gone up about one degree C. But because of the impacts of the changing amount of ice, the Arctic has warmed some three degrees C, so much faster than the global average. So you see much greater impacts to do with landscape change. So we're going out there for um, a meeting where we will exchange science. They're very interesting meetings, the Arctic Frontiers meetings or the Arctic Council meetings, because we talk about climate science, but a lot of the conversations are the impacts on landscapes and in particular the indigenous populations in the Arctic who are being their livelihoods are being incredibly affected in Siberia, the White Sea, in Alaska, northern Canada, in Greenland, despite these people having minimal, if not zero, impacts on climate change because they've always had a sustainable existence be it fishing from the sea or making their livings from the land. They don't have a high carbon footprint at all. So it's a really interesting conversation how these, in the most case, developed nations that border the Arctic Circle 
and their impacts on the indigenous community. So we're going for a meeting, but then we're also traveling to Svalbard, which is very, very close to the to the North Pole, where we will try and collect data regarding the changes in climate. One of the things that the Earth Observatory of Singapore is particularly interested in now is satellite remote sensing data to observe the changes on our planet. And satellites commonly have an equatorial orbit, so they orbit via the equator. But there are also satellites that have a polar orbit. They go from the north to the south pole. That's their orbit. All of that data is downloaded in Svalbard. And we're trying to reach an agreement between the Norwegians and Singapore to have direct, real-time access to that data so we can prepare Singapore better to disasters. We can respond with aid and information. So that's one of the aspects. For me personally, one of the things that I'm interested in is just seeing how the environment has changed, how much ice is being lost, how much water the temperature. There have been some staggering facts. There was last year in Svalbard, it was warmer, and this was in the summertime, it was warmer in Svalbard than it was in Singapore. I mean, just get your head around that. An area in the North Pole being warmer than tropical Singapore. And that shows how crazy the climate is. Here in Singapore, we're rather... I don't know, protected from climate change because we sit on the equator. We've not seen extremes, but these regions do see extremes. They see high temperatures. They see in, in the Arctic Circle, they see wildfires. Again, get your head around that. These are supposed to be ice covered regions, but they have open ground and boreal forests that have been burning. Okay, sticking to rising sea levels. Now, I've seen such a variety of data that shows, uh, that predicts by how much sea levels will rise, Ben. What's your current thinking on that? Well, I can answer that in two ways. Uh, the first thing is that sea levels are very, very complex problem. And that sea level rise in Singapore, this is despite its name, sea level, but it isn't. It isn't a flat surface. Sea level rise in Singapore will be very different than sea level rise in Bangkok or Manila or Sydney or London or New York or Oslo or Stockholm. It will be different around the globe because there are a variety of processes that influence sea level on the global, regional and local scale. At the global scale, um, processes that influence everywhere at a similar degree, that is to do with thermal expansion of our oceans. You increase our ocean temperatures, oceans occupy greater volume and sea level goes up. And then the other is the melting of ice. 20th century driven by glaciers, now driven by our ice sheets. And the concern in the scientific community going back to tipping points is what happens to these ice sheets because quite simply they hold such a colossal amount of water. Greenland, for example, um, if it was all to melt, would raise global sea levels by seven metres. Antarctica, if it all was to melt, would raise global sea levels by 60 metres. So really, you only need a small percentage of these ice sheets to have devastating effects. On the regional basis, there are many, many processes. Tectonics can cause the land to uplift or the land to sink, amplifying or diminishing sea level rise. 
gravity. So these ice sheets are so big, anything with a large mass has a large gravitational attraction. So our oceans are attracted, move up, the volume of the water moves towards these ice sheets. If these ice sheets melt, that gravitational attraction weakens. And we did some work on, in the Earth Observatory that showed that, let's say, Greenland melts sufficiently to contribute one metre of sea level rise. That will be unevenly distributed around the globe because of gravity. And Singapore would receive around 1.3 metres or 30% higher than the global average. And that's the same for all tropical locations. So what is sea levels in Singapore? Well, you mentioned the number one metre. Yes, Singapore at some point, because sea level rise is one of the processes in climate that is irreversible. Unfortunately, We've set wheels in motion that sea level rise will occur. There's nothing we can do about it. What we can do about it is how high is it going to get? But we will receive one metre at sea level rise at some point in the Earth's history. Will it be in the next 50 years? Will it be by the end of the century? Will it be the end of next century? Or will it be in 500 years' time? And that rate of increase is so crucial because there are a variety of tipping points in the ecological systems that they cannot survive certain rates of sea level rise. So we have this choice now. We know we have to adapt to sea level rise because it is occurring, but we have a choice of how fast it's going to get. So what is the best guest estimates for sea level rise for Singapore? Well, it depends what emission scenario we're on. If we meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, which were ratified at COP26, at the end of this century, we could expect around 50 centimetres of sea level rise. If we just continue as business as usual, that we do not do anything to regulate against carbon, we keep on destroying our natural protection against greenhouse gas. I mean, you know, we talk about nature-based solutions and everyone thinks about this as a, a, an opportunity for us to survive climate change. Well, we destroyed more rainforests or deciduous forests last year than at any point in the whole history of human civilization. So we're not really doing a very good job on that. We've turned the Amazon from being a carbon sink where we absorbed carbon to now being a carbon source, not really doing very well on that. So we hear a lot of platitudes about nature-based solutions, but actual action by governments or the markets is non-existent in my regard. But what will sea level be? If sea level, if we keep as business as usual, yes, it will be about an average of around 80 centimetres to one metre. But our big worry is these tipping points. If we go over two degrees C above pre-industrial, we start to invoke processes that can cause catastrophic sea level rise. Five metres by 2000 in about 100 years. A five metre sea level rise. Well, you can kiss goodbye to Singapore. Now, Singapore cannot survive that. So a nation that is incredibly proud um, of its existence, its impact in the world, will just drown like a modern-day Atlantis 
if we just keep on using carbon like we do and we keep burning rainforests and deciduous forests like we do, keep destroying our oceans and our corals like we do, Singapore won't exist. That's a very worrying thought. Um, now, you mentioned uh, nature-based solutions, Ben. I know you've worked on a paper um, that looks at nature-based solutions and sea level rise. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but I want to ask you about other tipping points that really worry you. Sea level rise seems to be a tipping point that we've already reached, as in uh, the effects of it are irreversible and they are inevitable. What are the other tipping points that worry you in Asia? Well, if we think about nature-based solutions, so I'm a big, big supporter on actions that use our knowledge of the Earth system to bring us back to equilibrium on the climate. So that's where nature-based solutions come from. I mean, nature currently absorbs about 70% of our carbon dioxide emissions. Quite phenomenal that the oceans absorb it and our and our plants in our rainforests and our deciduous forests absorb it. So the idea is that we protect and preserve or potentially expand these nature-based solutions, be they corals, mangroves, here in Southeast Asia, be they corals, oysters, mangroves, submerged aquatic vegetation, or our tropical rainforests. We protect and preserve those, and then we, we can and potentially um, um, advance those so we store more and more carbon under the ground, taking it out of the atmosphere, storing it under the ground, as the Earth has done for billions of years. But... Those ecosystems themselves have tipping points for survival. If you know anything about natural selection and evolution, it's all about ecological niches that a species has a tolerance that it likes that it has to live within and has an optimum with which it survives the best at. So if we think about our mangroves, our mangroves are phenomenal. They protect our shorelines from coastal erosion. So they're a natural sea level defense. Um, they're a biodiversity hotspot. Many, many of the fishes that exist in our open ocean or our corals breathe there. Um, they filter our drinking water phenomenally. All our pollutants that we may emit down our estuaries and waterways are filtered by our mangroves, holding these in place so our oceans and our river waters continue to be clean. But they also store carbon, and they're more efficient at storing carbon and also methane, a very, very powerful greenhouse gas, than all other ecosystems. But they have a tolerance to sea level rise. You just think where mangroves live, they live along our coastlines. And when sea level falls, they can gradually go out into the intertidal zone. They can advance seaward. When sea level rises, they will gradually move inland. But if sea level rises too fast, they drown in place. And therefore, all the benefits be it biodiversity, drinking water, and the carbon is lost. And so we've done quite a lot of work in trying to find out what this tipping point is. 
And we came out with a threshold and we did this first looking at salt marshes, which are the temperate equivalent of mangroves in the United Kingdom. And then we started looking at mangroves here in the Indo-Pacific. And we identified a threshold of seven millimetres per year, that if the rate of sea level rise is greater than seven millimetres per year, our mangroves will be lost. If it's less than seven millimetres per year, because mangroves, like all other ecosystems, all other life forms, its number one principle is survival. It will keep pace to it. Mangroves can keep pace with low rates of sea level rise because they just store more and more sediments. Their roots grow faster and faster so they can keep their heads above water. But when it gets to seven millimetres, they cannot do that. And if we're going back to your question about the rates of sea level rise, if we keep to the Paris Agreement and we only have 40 centimetres or 50 centimetres sea level rise by the end of this century, we're below that threshold. And therefore, our mangroves can thrive and they can flourish and they can provide the benefits that we need. If you have a high emission future, ones where we continue to use carbon and we do not protect our ecosystems, then that seven metre threshold is passed in 2050 or 2060 in 30 or 40 years time. So all our investment of nature-based solutions is just lost. And there is a that's a feedback effect. You rise the, you get the rate of sea level to cross that threshold. All these areas that are storing all our carbon are lost, meaning that our rates of sea level rise increase even faster. I mean, that's why regarding climate change, why it's so urgent to keep our emissions lower, to make sure our temperatures don't go above two degrees C. It's really interesting with climate change that in the end, Despite all its complexities, the scientific community have done their job. They've said what the threshold is, two degrees C. They've not been vague about this. They say, keep your temperatures below two degrees C. You do that, we can maintain a stable climate and civilization and biodiversity can in all senses continue. Go beyond that and all bets are off. And so now, in a way, science has done its job. I mean, that number may change, maybe 1.9, maybe 2.2. I don't know. But we've done our job. It's now up to governments and businesses to say, how are we going to meet that? And at the moment, I don't see any particular progress. And indeed, we get keep on being hit left side and right side by activities in the world that are just increasing our carbon commitment, the Ukraine war being an example of this. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your thoughts on efforts made uh, to avoid reaching these climate tipping points, Ben. You know, we've seen a flurry of net zero targets, haven't we, from big corporations and governments, Mm -hmm. but the emissions keep rising and keep breaking new records every year. Um, So, yeah, your thoughts on efforts being made currently to combat climate change? Well, I think obviously there's been significant progress um, around the world. I mean, we perhaps reached a nadir with Trump being elected 
into the United States and removing them, the United States from the Paris Agreement. And if the US weren't going to meet the Paris Agreement, well, then no other country really would follow suit because it does have a short-term economic issue as you start to adapt to a new source of energy and 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 sustainability but now we have biden um, bringing the us back into the fold cop 26 um depending how you look at it could have been sorry to interrupt there ben just just to interject slightly i I read somewhere i think it was yesterday that the amount that the biden and administration has spent on combating climate change, well, this year is less than Elon Musk paid for buying Twitter. So that gives some sort of context to me, at least, perspective on on uh, efforts and money being spent on uh, curbing climate change. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, but it gets back to at least we have COP twenty six was a, um, in in many cases was attended by the biggest leaders on the planet, and it was discussed openly and a framework was put in place to try and keep our temperatures. Now the best guess is that if everything in COP26 was agreed to, you would keep our temperatures to around 2.4 degrees C. So still over that threshold, but that's a significant improvement to where we were in the 1990s, where temperatures were going to be in excess of three or four degrees C. So based upon the latest sort of economic um, simulations, it's around a 2.4. So we've made significant progress and that's because of science that's because of society it's because of people such as yourselves really trying to keep on pushing the issue and keeping people honest but my big concern about cop 26 is a lot of the reductions are based upon the development of technologies to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere. So what's called carbon capture and storage, where you take carbon dioxide, you cool it, you put it under pressure, and you pump it back on into ground. So this has been done on a very small scale, but there simply to date hasn't been the investment on the grand scale that is needed. So you can take a glass half full or a glass half empty, and I'm still going to keep myself a glass half full here. I I work in a university um, surrounded by young, smart minds. We keep on having innovations regarding the ability to be more sustainable. But what we need is we need governmental regulation. If quite simply, we could put a price on carbon So currently, there's a carbon tax in Singapore of $5, and it's going to increase. We need to increase that by an order of magnitude, because if we started to truly value the horrendous impacts that carbon has on our planet, then the market would then respond virtually immediately to try and reduce costs. Um, But you're right that the American administration um, um, had has not kept to its promises on climate change. That's slightly because how how Senate works in the US, power can always be on a swing vote. You know, the US is now, the US was in turmoil between, because of Ukraine and the prices of gas. And then we 
open the papers today and we see Roe versus Wade being overturned, that the people on the Supreme Court, when they were elected under the Trump administration, went on record saying that they would not overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the um, um, governmental mandate on allowing women the choice of abortions. Um, they just basically lied to people and now they've overturned it. I mean, US is in turmoil. And so we have to hope that it remains a democratic, free democracy, um, because then maybe the young people's votes will still count. And um, you know that the young people are the drivers on climate change. Now, you mentioned hope and you being an optimistic uh, person, Ben, in your job. But I do wonder, knowing what you know, and um, going back to tipping points, how optimistic are you that can, we can avoid the most damaging tipping points? Um, well, that's a tough one. As I said, I'm an optimistic person. Um, you know, um, I study climate change, which has this horrible future ahead of it. Um, I support Manchester United. I'm still an optimist about United. And although all the evidence over the last decade nearly is that it's a club in serious decline. Um, so <laughs> I am an optimist over, over the future because you can think about when there's two things about climate that, that um, one is that if we think about the pandemic, so, I mean, I've read some issues um, um, of science and nature where they've asked people who have spent their career looking at vaccines and said, well, if you were asked in 2020 or 2019, would you be, be able to develop a vaccine for a COVID virus that would protect millions upon millions of people? They all said, no, it's just too soon. But lo and behold, when faced with a crisis, it wasn't a politician or a social media star or a sports person. It was a group of scientists who came together and developed these vaccines that protect us from, in the vast majority of cases, of severe illness. A study that came out today showed that the vaccines protect you from long COVID. I mean, they're quite phenomenal. So I always think that with climate change, if we're talking about carbon capture and storage, if it was perceived within the governments and the private sector that this was an emergency, that we would respond to it and develop that technology really quickly. On the flip side of it, however, is that although there was a vaccine for COVID, you can't have a vaccine for climate change because you need to provide the solutions before the emergency happens because once you pass those tipping points they're irreversible so on sea level rise the tipping point of two degrees c why we know that tipping point is because the last time in geological history when we had a temperature rise of two degrees c it set the wheels in motion for the collapse of the greenland and antarctic ice sheet causing tens of meters of sea level rise so we have to and that's what human human societies have an inability to do, if you look at our past history, is actually come together before the crisis hits. And that's where we need, I mean, you mentioned Elon Musk, 
Well, why did he have to buy Twitter? Why couldn't he have thought, well, you know, I've made all my money off Tesla cars to a great extent. Why don't I go the stage further and start to use my innovation to develop at a large scale carbon capture and storage? And you can think of a lot of business operators in that regard. We have a war in the Ukraine. Sorry to to interrupt there. Just on Elon Musk. I mean, he's clearly a pessimist when it comes to climate change, isn't he? Because he thinks that at some point we'll need to relocate the population to Mars. And that's what his space program is like. He, he inherently clearly believes that the climate fight, if you, if you will, is, is lost and we need to change planets. Well, but I think it's a little bit more broad than that. It's all about any, you know, it can be any type of disaster. You, you know, it's, it, to do with climate change, we only have one Earth. But any to do with any other type of disaster, we only have one Earth, a meteor impact. We only have one Earth. So his remit is that we need to have an alternative to keep the human species together. But colonizing Mars is not a reality. Come on. I mean, maybe for a small group of astronauts can maybe survive there for two to three years something like that we've got huge possibilities with planet earth and climate change we just need to make some choices um, regarding our daily lives and move forward in a coherent pattern all the solutions are readily available Um, you know um, we just need society to react upon it absolutely Um, indeed as the the point you made earlier, Ben, if only we could tackle climate change as we have um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, swiftly and resolutely. Um, that's a good place to leave it. Um, Professor Ben Horton, Director of the Earth's Observatory of Singapore, thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.